Hello, my name is Hannah Reeve. I'm the founder of Nature Nurtures, where we help social entrepreneurs, passionate teachers and earliest practitioners to set up their own outdoor nurseries and projects for children around the UK. This week, we're in beautiful Scotland, more precisely, at the Secret Garden Outdoor Nursery. Now, to my mind, this is the UK's first ever outdoor nursery, and it was certainly one that inspired Helen and me to set up Nurture Outdoor Kindergarten. Kathy Back was the founder of Secret Garden passionate educator with a wonderful vision for children in the great outdoors. We'll hear more about Cathy as we chat. Joining me today is Sarah Latte from the Secret Garden Outdoor Nursery. So Sarah, you're now the manager of the Secret Garden. So can you take us through, I guess take us back, because this is a unique story. I think take us back to the beginnings of the Secret Garden Outdoor Nursery as best you know it. Okay, sure. Yeah, well, thank you, Hannah. Uh, It's nice to be here. Um, well, the Secret Garden opened its invisible doors, you could say, in 2000, uh, 2008 in Fife in a small village called Lethem, which is just outside of Cooper. The story to getting to that point starts with with Cathy, who you've mentioned, wonderful, powerful, creative woman, uh, Cathy Back, who sadly passed away from cancer a few years ago. And she is very, very sorely missed um, by many. But we have lots of wonderful memories. And of course, our legacy lives on as the secret garden, which is which is wonderful. But Kathy was a drama teacher originally, and then she transitioned into early years and was working locally in Fife as a, a nursery teacher. She just got the feeling that something just wasn't still sitting right with her in terms of how early uh, years was, was, was operating um, in Scotland. And she'd spent um, a bit of time in Norway, I believe. She had some family there. She spent time there on holidays. She'd taken her own children across and she'd become a little bit familiar with that um, approach, the kind of more kindergarten approach. And more noticeably, she was very aware of the, over there that children spent a lot of time in nature when they were very young. And so she decided when she came back to leave her teaching role in her nursery teaching role. And she set up privately as a childminder based in her house, which is in the same village or was in the same village that the nursery now exists. And her house is right at the edge of the village and then it opens up to the woods beyond. And she started off childminding and every day she just would take the children nomadically off into the woods on adventures. And the stories go that she would witness less quarrels or there would be more, quarrels would be more easily resolved when the children were outdoors. They wanted to be outside, regardless of the weather, regardless of what was happening that day. And she just, from there, the kind of, the seed was planted of, well, maybe we could make this, you know, a reality for much more children, many more children, and create a nursery. And so there was a lot of work went into it, creating, you know, an organisation and getting directors on board and a lot of really good thinking of how this logistically is going to work. and. What would the staff have to manage and look like and and what's all the, the legislation around it and how could we use the woods and, and all this sort of stuff and then eventually yeah the, we were registered with the care inspector in 2008. So this is Kathy who is she's a true pioneer because there was no model there was no no one else had done this before in this country to my mind she's one of the few few pioneers in this area way back Although relatively, it's not actually that long ago when you really look in the grand scheme of things. But you see how this is how she has inspired so many people now 
to do this. She massively inspired us. And I remember exchanging emails with her and um, we never got up there to see it. She was so passionate and had a very clear vision as well, I think, of, of what childhood should be and what she wanted to offer children as well and, and that she was doing. And it was at that time, it was fully, fully outdoors as far as I'm aware. So this is, we're up in Fife, so we, you know, this is Scotland, the weather's pretty brutal. So I imagine there was a lot of pretty deep learning that went on in those first years for everyone, I imagine. Definitely, definitely. I think so. You know, I wasn't involved back then, um, but I'm trying to think when I would have been. I would have been an undergrad student at that point, but it was, I just lived along the road. I grew up in the next village from where the secret garden is. My, my, my hometown, my home village is about three miles along the road. But it's, yeah, I mean, it must have been, you know, I, th- I believe like now we have a Mongolian yurt as our shelter, but it didn't start with that. There was a, I want to say turtle tent or teepee tent or something like that, that was the indoor shelter space and it didn't have a fire in it. I think to begin with, they also took two-year-olds and that was then changed. That was very quick learning that outdoors all day, every day um, for two-year-olds was required a whole other layer for that was changed to three-year-olds at some point shortly after opening, I think, maybe a year. I'm not sure. A lot of learning happening. And we still, we're still learning every day, all the time, learning and growing. <laughs> Aren't we all? Aren't we all? So tell us a bit about how you arrived at the Secret Garden Art on Nursery. Uh, sure. So as I said, the, the nursery is based in the next village to me growing up. So I had probably wandered through there without realising what it was. But we'll get to that, I suppose. So I started off studying ecology. That was my undergrad degree. I was fascinated with the world around me, really enjoyed being in nature and the idea of ecology, kind of exploring how systems interconnect and weave and support one another and influence one another. And of course, us as humans, our impact on that as well was all fascinating to me. So I did that at Edinburgh. And when I graduated, I then moved up to just beyond Inverness in the highlands of Scotland gorgeous part of the world um, and I worked up there as, um, as a ranger Agus Field Centre and I ran their education department for a number of years and that was what a wonderful place to work oh, it, was, it was lovely it was beautiful it's a big old sporting lodge that's been restored which is where the family live and then all the rangers were based on site and it was a huge learning experience you know learning a lot about natural history and you know, you think that when you're at uni, you're going to learn a lot about a subject, but you learn more when you're in your when you're in the real world and in your job. And that was fascinating. And I really loved working with the young children up there. But I preferred the kind of primary primary age and also the secondary pupils who were coming in to to do some like higher or you know various different pieces of project work and research. Nursery age children still found quite challenging at that point in time, just because they didn't really know how to interact around them. And then at the end of that journey. There was um, a friend of mine in Scottish Natural Heritage who pointed me towards a master's degree back at Edinburgh, which was focusing on outdoor environmental and sustainability education. And it was a fully funded post. And she thought because of my role, I would be a good candidate. So I applied and I was really fortunate to get it. So I ended up back in academia for another couple of years. It was through that course, which if anyone listening to this has had the chance to do that course at Edinburgh Uni, it is phenomenal. The team there are amazing, all the lecturing staff and teaching team. I think our first course was canoeing down the space, which wasn't at all about learning how to canoe, like at all. 
you know, but that was the the vessel for it. It was a magic course. And it was through that course that I suddenly realized the kind of magic of the early years. And I did my placement with Stephen White, who was at that time at Dumblane Nature Kindergarten. And I suddenly realized, God, possibilities of engaging with a group of adults who might not necessarily share similar traits, values, beliefs that I have with regards to nature by exposing them to that as well, because they see it and the benefits of it in the children that they work with. And then all of a sudden I was talking to my father about this one day and he was like, Sarah, do you not know that the UK's first fully outdoor nursery is in the next village in Lethem? And my mind was just blown. I had no idea at that point. So I contacted Kathy immediately with a big backstory and said, please, oh, please, oh, please take me on board as sessionals. <laughs> and luckily she did. <laughs> and I'm forever grateful for that. Well, I bet she must have been. It's so wonderful when you get that phone call from that passionate practitioner, isn't it? You hear, you hear that passion from someone. You think, OK, OK, this is someone a bit different. And she clearly saw the value in you. Very sensitive too. Who else was with Kathy at the time with setting setting this whole thing up because exactly as you said at the beginning she had to go through the business process and actually work out how on earth to do all of this and go about it and to also make it fit with the expectations of the care inspectorate so was she doing this on her own did she have someone with her she had it's my understanding that there was a group of very supportive parents who are maybe not all of them but some they, they were the board of directors and the directors were very able with quite a, a diverse skill set uh, shall we say so it was the directors who I think supported Kathy through that although I think she had a very clear vision you know and, and knew exactly kind of what she wanted to do and the way she wanted to do it I think she had some really good staff in the beginning as well some like really capable compassionate you know staff that, that obviously helped with that process as well so then you turn up on the doorstep at Kathy's place saying that you want to come and work there so at what point I mean how long had you been there before you stepped into that management role oh you're testing me now I must have started there in 2015 and then I took the manager role in 2018. How was that? How were those three years? Was that, that, was that a steep learning curve or was that a nice continuation of what you've been doing before? Good question. So what I'd been doing before, no, it was a steep learning curve. So it was a steep learning curve because at the field centre, it was more, we were doing more pre-planned activities. You know, I'd come fresh out of uni. I didn't have any sort of teacher skills. I did a lot of horse riding when I was younger and I did a lot of uh, teaching to younger children of horse riding and a little bit of tennis and things like that. So I had kind of natural way of engaging with younger people, but I'd never actually learned anything about the curriculum, you know, or anything like that. It was all, we were looking at the field centre. It was about how can we teach, you know, environmental science and, you know, ecological messages and the importance of living sustainably on the planet that was kind of what we were aiming for at the field center so suddenly coming to an outdoor nursery was very different because I would in my day I would be looking at the field center okay we're going pond dipping from 10 till 11 and then we're going on a bug hunt from 11 to 15 to 12 <laughs> then we're having lunch you know so it was very kind of you know segmented and, and organized although the children themselves when they're in it you can kind of explain what's going to happen and then they just do their own thing. But Secret Garden is very different because, you know, the first thing Kathy explained to me was, I want you to go and sit at the base of that tree and I want you to watch, you know. And I remember my first day and sitting at the base of this tree 
I think this was my shadow day. So I wasn't counted as a staff member. It was like a training settling in process. And I felt, you know, I was like, I'm not doing anything. She's going to, you know, I'm going to be judged because I'm not doing anything. I need to feel like, I need to feel youthful. I need to feel valued. I could be, you know, tending the fire or I could be, you know, but every now and again, I just had to wee tap on the shoulder. Just stay where you are. Just watch. Just observe. See how the staff interact. See what the children are doing. And it was, it was, it was great. I suddenly realised the magic for the children happens when they are being safely, I would use the language, held or ho- they're being safely held in a space by, you know, skilled practitioners. But the practitioners aren't interrupting the play. The children are in that kind of deep focus reflow play state and the practitioners are able to watch and really observe and then you know if it's appropriate scaffold you know at some point in time if that's needed or add something on or offer an extra resource or a tool but nine times out of ten it's more just about the giving them the space and giving them the time um to actually try and experience things and resolve things for themselves so it was a steep learning curve i can also remember in my first week or so seeing a little one go up a quite a steep cliff using a rope and every fibre of my being wanted to be at the bottom of that child with my hands out, you know, holding in case they fell. But again, I was working with Kathy and another practitioner and they were like, no, that child's absolutely fine. They knew the children. They knew there was the risk of anything happening in that situation was very low. And that's something that I learned over time. And just appreciating that we've all got learning edges and this was brand new for me. And so I was way out on my learning edge. And after a number of you know, weeks of learning how everything worked, it's like, ah, OK, I now know those children. It's about building up relationships with the children and the parents and your colleagues and understanding, right, that child's going up that little cliffy bit. I need to be there or I don't need to be there or I need to be close or I'm OK where I am as long as I've got my eye. You know, there's, oh, it's, it's fascinating how it all works, but certainly for the first be well, my heart would flutter and pump a lot in my chest. <laughs> See. This is the art of observation and true observation, because I think that term is thrown around a lot in early years and I think not fully understood because observing isn't just watching something happen and writing it up and sending it to a parent. It's so much more because exactly as Kathy identified, and this is what I think Helen and I found so inspiring because this isn't just right, children are outside and they're playing. This is an ethos. This is something very special and something that was put together by Kathy originally and then as courses evolved as other people have become involved and, and carried it forward. And I remember for us, at the very beginning, it was bright. We must learn how to observe, truly observe. And that includes the whole listening experience and being able to remember everything that happened because that's part of the training as well. Um, for us as practitioners, so that we're not there just mindlessly writing everything down. It's really being present and taking that in and understanding it and reflecting on it as well. It's so valuable. This is why the setting is so exciting to me, because it's doing something very, very special. So if you're a practitioner listening to this and thinking, oh, wow, that's that sounds really cool. It is. And it's really special. And it's something that I'm sure if you were to have a chat with Secret Garden, with Sarah, they would be having you there to share in some training experience. Because I guess it's worthwhile as well, Sarah, I think you're massively influenced by hand-in-hand parenting, aren't you? Is that quite central to the practice or is that something that a practitioner 
brings in and sort of leads and models for everyone? So it was, again, this was something that Kathy sort of discovered. I think it was late 2015. She went on the Hand in Hand Parenting by Connection six-week starter class. So Hand in Hand Parenting is based in this from the United States. I think it was Patty Whipler is the lady's name. Yeah, who set it up. And since 2015, we've, as a nursery, we've been trying to use it as our way to support children's emotional well-being, well-being in the woods. It's a fantastic toolkit. It's a wonderful way of engaging and supporting children while at the same time understanding your own responses to children's emotional episodes, I suppose you could call them, outbursts, and learning your triggers and things like that, which is absolutely fascinating. So you as a practitioner can then ex- understand that in yourself and then it allows you to really turn towards the child and really be there for the child in that moment in time. And so our, um, we have a member of staff who is now our training facilitator, Louise Durrant. She's trained as um, a hand-in-hand instructor and all of our staff now have the six-week, at least the six-week start a class uh, level of hand-in-hand training. And the way we use it in the woods, for example, there are various listening tools. Some are adult to adult, some are adult to child. The adult to adult one is called listening time. So at the nursery, all staff have a listening partner. Um, Most of the listening partners are also another member of staff. And so you can, it's entirely confidential. And my listening partner and I used to work together. So at the end of the day, it would be a two-way exchange, 10 minutes each. One talks, one listens. It's just so helpful to be able to, you know, when you are a conscious practitioner, you take stuff home with you. You know, you take it home and you think, oh, in hindsight, I should have intervened or I should not have intervened or I I could have done this. And it would have been great to have done that at that time. And if I'd done this, then maybe that wouldn't have happened and all sorts. And so it's really great at the end of the day to just be able to just voice everything that you need to voice and then be able to go home with a clear head and a clear heart. The listening partnerships are great. And if you are a parent as well, you can, it's just if you're supporting other your children or other people's children in the nursery with their emotions, you're, you know, that can kind of be absorbed being the caring people that we are in this profession. And so you need to be able to offload that yourself as well with someone who's, you know, you trust in, in a kind of confidential space. It's a lovely, I really like it. And the tools of stay listening, play listening, and there's also setting limits and special time. And we can weave those into a day, you know, stay listening can really help at drop-offs. If children are finding it tricky to say goodbye to parents and caregivers in the woods, we can maybe offer special time if we can factor it in, which is one-to-one with an adult and a child. And the child chooses what to do and leads to play and the adult follows with full gusto and lots of support and playful laughter just to kind of help fill up that emotional cup a little bit so they can, if there's any tricky stuff in the rest of the day, they're already got a lot of lovely connection. And of course, that's the key word, connection. That's what we're trying to do is make sure that all the children feel they've got a line of connection with the staff that they're working with all the time. And it's when that connection is broken, that's when you can, you know, perhaps have some off-track behaviour. And that's the child then going, I need an adult help, you know, I need connection line back again. It's fascinating. It's really interesting to work with hand in hand. And again, we're always, always learning. And it's lovely to acknowledge that it's okay for children to release feelings, you know, which I think is massive, particularly if you come in as a young person and you've got a crying child, your first instinct, well, mine was to try and change the subject, make them laugh, stop crying, you know, actually it's okay. And, you know, they'll stop crying when it's all out and then they'll feel better afterwards and be able to go on and have a lovely day. 
I think hand-in-hand parenting makes this very accessible for parents and practitioners as well. I remember exactly for us, 2015 was when we were looking at setting, or when we did set up, sorry, we took a couple of years. And before that, we'd been looking at hand-in-hand parenting and speaking with other practitioners as well. Most of them were parents, actually. It wasn't hugely known, but it was coming out of the States and it was making a bit of noise because it was seen as another alternative parenting, kind of attachment-based parenting that was popular at the time. I think it's added so much to practice. We're certainly, and I can hear it's, it's wonderful to hear how it works in your setting as well. How do you do that in terms of staff then? How many staff to children do you have typically a day? So we work on, we can have one to seven, but we tend to do one to six ratio. So we'd have two staff with 12 or we'd have three staff with up to 18 children on a day. So it can be, so obviously hand-in-hand parenting was designed for parents to use with their children. And so it can be challenging. And there are certain tools that are harder to use, like the special time, which is one-to-one. So that has to be factored in and planned. And if children get used to it, they, they'll sometimes ask for it, which is great because that's them able to identify that they're needing that additional extra support, which is wonderful. And we'll always try and provide for it. But the reality is that we're not always able to provide that one-to-one support. So in an ideal world, we would have somebody else floating around that could just come in and offer all the special time. And, you know, wouldn't that be great? (laughs) We could all afford these like wonderful extra staff members. But I think we just have to do our best with what we can. And we also were so great having Louise. She um, as a a hand-in-hand instructor, because it means we can also do parent workshops as well. And we're always, we've built hand in hand the, the listening tools into our support plans for children too. So, you know, we're looking at not just curriculum and well-being indicators and things like that. We're also looking at what hand in hand tools we can use to support any support plans for specific children as well. So it's, we're trying to really weave it into the language of the nursery, you know, not just the staff, but the parents and the families as well. And then also in on training workshops as well. Awesome. Sounds fantastic. Now, thinking as well, so about your staffing, because I think when we last spoke, it was interesting you said about how majority, if not all of your staff, have started as volunteers. Mm-hmm. So what does, you know, recruiting staff is a really big deal. It's huge because to, although they're coming into a, a company culture as such, they, they're bringing their own stuff with them, mm-hmm. aren't they? So you've got to get it right. So tell us about your recruitment process, I suppose. That would be interesting to hear. How do you go about recruiting practitioners? So it's the recruitment process is Secret Guard. And I can remember when I went through it thinking, whoa, you know, this is, (laughs) I've not had to do this before for a job. So you obviously, some people just contact us out of the blue and say, hi, are you recruiting? I'm interested, which is great. And if we are, you know, if there's a space at that point in time, that can happen. Usually we'll we'll kind of put out like an advertisement or whatever. First stage is they come to, practitioners come to what is an in the woods workshop. We put one on for potential new practitioners. So they have a day of doing our kind of flagship training course. Do they have to pay for that or or is that free? What we do is we say if you then become staff, it's reimbursed. So Very sensible. Yeah, because I think for a while it was free and unfortunately that got taken advantage of, which is very sad. But at the same time, really great training for free is also candy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we now have a system where if you do become staff, then that you're reimbursed. Or if you volunteer for a certain number of 
days, then that is also reimbursed as well. Um, because part of our goal is we want to spread the message as far and wide as possible. So, you know, there's pros and cons to both of those things. Um, so come to a, an In the Woods workshop day and then built into that is time spent with certain members of staff, myself included, our training facilitator included. And then after the In the Woods workshop, you're invited to write um, a reflection on your day um, and how you how you found it, um, how it went. We're obviously all observing how everyone's engaging, people's comments, the way people generally just are in themselves. And then after that, we'll then invite people based on the reflection, reflective piece and the, the day itself on the training day, we would invite people to interview. And from interview, we would then uh, invite people to take part in a shadow day as well, which is a full day in the woods as an observer. And then based on the interview and the shadow day, we would then consider offering. So this is an excellent process. Huge amount of resource has to go into it, though. This is, this is significant. You're investing a lot of time. Time is money. So how successful do you find this? How long do people stick around for and how much do you see they share the vision? Does it work? Yeah, it does. It's, it's 100% worth it because you find that people who aren't overly interested will fall through the loop because this whole process can take a month. So people who are actually have um, thought about it or they're, you know, they're, they reflect on the day, but there's not that kind of, they've not really got it. They've not really understood what it is that we're trying to do. And so it's really easy to be able to say, um, thank you very much, but, you know, process will stop here. But generally, I find that there's a lot of people who want to come and work at Secret Garden. There's a lot of people who want to come and volunteer. At the moment, we've got a couple of staff who have been ex-parents, you know, so they've finished their children have gone through nursery and then they've come in to volunteer and then they've never left and are now qualified and, you know, have come through that way. And we do find that a lot of our staff do come from being volunteers. So we maybe don't have any spaces for staff, but why don't you volunteer? If you're really interested, build up your skills, build up your knowledge, build up your experience. So then when we're ready to recruit, you've already, you know, you're right there um, to step into any position that we have. And I don't think that's anything to shy away from away from in a setting it works really well and you you get to know everybody too and the kids get to kids are quite a good judge of character as well I find (laughs) definitely what do you think of this person (laughs) they'll give it to you straight excellent so they're part of your recruitment process I love it now can you tell us a bit about the space in which you're working tell us about the space at Secret Garden Outdoor Nursery we're really fortunate to have access to 25 acre woodland, which is at the edge of a little village. So we don't have an indoor space for the children. We have a village hall, which we have access to in the village, which is used to prepare snack in the morning. And it's our emergency evacuation point if there's any dangerous weather where we can't be in the woods. And that would mostly be related to wind. Then we have a play park opposite the village hall, which is the kind of gathering point for the beginning and the end of the day. Parents drop off there. The play park is contained with a fence all the way around it. And then we have a walk of about, I don't know, half a mile maybe, to the woods. So once all the children are in, I've never thought about measuring the distance. We then walk with all children up the hill to the woods and we go together. It could take us anything from 40 minutes to an hour and a bit, depending on the interests of the children that day, or if they want to stop all the time and look at things, or if they're fairly content with just walking. And when we arrive at the top, we've got what the children have called the thinking spot. 
So we've created a map of our whole site, which the children get when they first start. And everything is named by the children. So this thinking spot is basically the entrance to the woods. And we stop and we make our circle. All our transitions are done through singing. So we'd, we'll sing together and, and uh, we'll, at the thinking spot, we'll decide where are we going to go and play today? And the children who've been there for a little bit of time know that we have to think about the wind direction. They also know we have to think about what other weather might be coming if it's really sunny and um, what time of year we're at. For example, at the moment, we're coming into wasps beginning to arrive. So I had a conversation with a wee one last week. Is there a wasp's nest still at, where, at the squirrel run? And I was saying, well, there was one there last year. I don't know if there'll be one this year or not. We'll have to go and see because that might mean that the squirrel run is out of is out of the equation for you know the summer again. So we've got about 12 active play sites within the 25 acres. And at Thinking Spot, we decide which one of those 12 sites we want to go to that day. And that becomes our base camp. Yeah. So we can just go. And when we arrive, it's that nothing is physically marked. It's There's no physical boundaries to any places within the woods. The children, through time, learn where the, the sort of places begin and end. And we also have a careful process when we bring in new children that we only ever introduce one new child at a time um, to the group so that the group can help um, set the boundaries and, and explain, kind of model the routines. And the staff can be there very much to support the new child before the next new child will come in. So in August, we might only start August with six children in a group, but by the October holidays, we're up to 12 because it just takes that amount of time to get everybody in slowly. And we find that that is worth it. It's financially not the most sustainable model in terms of bringing children in, but in terms of really allowing the group to gel, really allowing the new children to land and feel supported and allowing the staff to make sure that they've got good relationships with all the children, we feel that it makes the most sense. So what sort of age group are these children that we're talking about here? So we've got uh, three is the youngest and we got, we got to seven. So we are trying to be a kindergarten, a true kindergarten stage, if you like, which is something we started in 2018. Through demand from our families, we had a lot of families who wanted an extra year for their child. So non-automatic deferrals. I'm not sure how it works where you are, but up in five children, if your birthday lies within a certain you know, month range, you can have an, what's called an automatic deferral for an extra year of ELC funding. And if you're outside that, you can defer if you want. It's your choice, but you would have to pay for it or you'd have to have special circumstances and then it would have to be spent, if you like, in a five council nursery setting and not private setting. So it's a little bit exclusive. With the new information before the election, I think Marie Todd up here in Scotland had said that um, they're going to remove that barrier. So anyone who wants to defer can. Um, if they're not aged five before starting school and that will be funded, but that they're not bringing that in until 2023. There's been quite a lot of stuff going on at the moment, pre-election, uh, pre-elections um, and things like that yeah. in Scotland. Excellent. Well, and I think Scotland have always got it right in terms of early years education, for sure. Well, they've got it better than us, let's put it like that. <laughs> in England, because in the UK, we have a wonderful devolved government I think it has a lot of strengths, means that places like Scotland and Wales get to do things in ways that are better than England, I think. <laughs> we could have a whole conversation about this one. Oh, we could. We could go really political. I think it's a different <laughs> podcast. <laughs> oh, dear. In England, I believe it sits within UK law as well. So we have the summer born rules. So exactly the same. If the birthday lies between April and August, 
they're considered summer born and they can start school at compulsory school age. The only difference is you have to have agreement from the head teacher as to whether the child will start in reception or go straight to year one. So that's the difference. But everybody needs to be in some form of formal education, whether that's home education or in school. The term after they turn five, that's compulsory school age, is my understanding. Anyway, we digress. It's interesting to hear about the site and also how your recruitment process works, which I think is excellent and not enough people talk about recruitment either in these ways. I think it's really helpful to hear. What is the business structure? What is the company structure that the Secret Garden is set up as? So the nursery is set up as a, a company limited by guarantee, but we have a not-for-profit status. So I think that means we, we have an asset lock. It means we can't, you can't sell it. And it doesn't, we have a board of directors, not an owner. Yeah, it's set up like that with um, a board of directors that change every now and again. But we've got directors on there who have been there since 2008, as well as some new directors coming in and some ex-parents who are now directors too. So it's really, it's really great. We aim to have a director's meeting monthly, one alternating between a business meeting and then what we would call a fire meeting. And we had our first fire meeting because of all the COVID stuff last night that's the first fire meeting we've had since early 2020 it's because six of us are allowed to meet outside from six different households so we had our first fire meeting last night in the woods because it's all that they've all just been on teams or zoom or whatever online kind of video conferencing system everybody has and it was so nice to connect with everybody again in the physical rather than in a little square box so you're all sitting around your your campfire and talking about the future of 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 the nursery that's the way to do it. Much better than on Zoom. It is. The Secret Garden has a kind of Kathy practice Buddhism. And so there is a kind of spiritual element woven through in terms of ways that we were very nature connected in terms of the language that we use in terms of the way that we act as a staff and director team. But there's also things that we try and practice as well. Like we open everything. So we're having a meeting. There's an opening. And that could be, and it's usually prearranged who's going to open it so that it's not sprung on someone, although all of our directors are completely happy to whip something out of somewhere and open it. But it might be an opening, might be like a mindful moment, you know, we, where we might be invited to close our eyes and somebody would like lead us through a kind of two, three minute just mindfulness moment of just tuning us in to our senses and what's happening around us and just allowing us to like our minds catch up with our bodies. So our bodies are there, but our minds are on remembering to pick up cat food on the way home from work and being annoyed at that text message from your sister. <laughs> this, is, this is me personally. Um, you know, and just need some time to just let that, let the sand and the silt just settle so you've got clarity again. And we start that, we use a tune-in and that kind of process at the start of our day as a staff team as well as, um, a way of opening all of our meetings too. And then we also have someone finish it. So it's like a kind of, you're bringing a real awareness that I am here, I am present, I am giving myself to this, whatever it is, this podcast session. I'm fully here for you right now. I'm listening, I'm attentive. And then at the end, it's finished and I can move on to something else. And it's really helpful for mental functioning. It is. I think a lot of parents talk about, well, we I've people that we know this might just be the kind of kindergarten we are, but we have lots of parents talk about guided meditation, 
and how that has changed their experience of parenting. I think you're talking a lot about you know the wellness and the mindfulness, and I love the wonderful lead-in for practitioners as well as they come in, and how important it is to understand your own triggers and to have that self-awareness, which I think is so important in life generally, but when working with children is really significant because you need to understand the areas that you need help with. Now, Sarah, who owns the woods that you are in? So that 25 acres, how has that come about? It's owned at the moment by a family who live um, in Fife. So it's not owned by us. We have an agreement with um, the farmer in the village because the area at the edge of the woods where we have our yurt and we have all our storage boxes and we have some actual physical resources such as wooden play blocks and things like that. That is on the farmer's land. So we also have an agreement with the farmer with regards to that part. And then we have an agreement with the owners of the woods with regards to accessing the woodland. So that's all, when you're saying an agreement, that's all lease type arrangements. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And do you have them, like, do they have a minimum term or have have they been nice and long? Or do you have to negotiate that every year, for example? We do. We have one is we have an agreement and I think it comes in like five year cycles. And then it's revisited. So pretty standard. Okay. We know them when we kind of try and keep communication channels open, you know, as much as possible and make sure that everyone's comfortable and happy with what's going on. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like the nursery is central to the village. Like it's a big part of village life because you're established at the village hall. Um, you have that walk through the village as well to get to the woods. It sounds like a wonderful place-based learning experience for everyone and, and important part of the community, which that mm. is what education is all about, right? Definitely. Definitely. Connecting some, all of us. All I was going to say is we have some really lovely connections with people in the village. So we have some uh, village residents who are our emergency contacts. You know, if anything, if we ever needed an emergency person, they could up and help and then we also have residents in the village who we have an aqua role that we fill up every now and again if to help so we have um water butts to collect rainwater but if it's particularly dry we might need to fill up an aqua role to help water the garden or for fire water and there's an elderly couple in the village who we go to with a few children and fill up the aqua role at their outdoor tap um they sometimes this particular elderly couple the, the man often helps out with our garden there's another elderly resident in the village who always appears when we're walking up the hill to go and walk our dog. You know, she just always appears. And the children love this dog. It's a really old dog. But it's just, we go up at slightly different times each day, just depending on dynamics and what's been happening. And, you know, if there's been a tricky drop-off, we'll be delayed. But they're all, she's always there. So it, I think she, you know, she enjoys it as well. It's part of her socialisation of the day. And obviously with COVID, we've had to be particularly careful. But now that's beginning to ease a little bit. We're, we're beginning to see people out and about again, which is lovely. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. So, Sarah, what's next for the Secret Garden Outdoor Nursery? Oh, big question. So Kathy always had this dream vision to create an experiential training programme where people could come from wherever they were at all over the world and kind of be a part of the nursery for a period of time and learn experientially about what it is that we do and then take those little seeds and spread them far and wide all over the world. And it's, we've just not got to the point where that is financially uh, and logistically manageable yet, but that is certainly a, 
a dream that the nursery still has. And we're also looking into possibly opening another site at some point as well, if we can, which might run slightly differently or it might run the same. It just depends. But we have to make sure that we've got one of our senior practitioners said it really well. We have to make sure that the core is really strong so that the staff are really strong so that when we do, we almost have to do cell division to make sure that we've got enough of us who are you know, confident in the practice not just being with the children, but in the nature connectedness, you know, in the in the use of mindfulness, in the use of speaking from the heart, you know, all of these things we have to be strong in. So if we do split and, you know, grow at a different place, that nucleus is strong enough to support new practitioners, new staff, new families coming in who haven't heard anything about the nursery before and start something from a brand new so again it's a slow everything at secret garden is organic and happens very slowly but we do get there eventually yeah and i think it's worth you know circulating and really thinking about things like this isn't it it's got to be thought out carefully it sounds very very special and i I think anyone that gets to attend the secret garden uh is very privileged with that same setting the, the setting you're talking about Possibly in the future, would that be in five or somewhere completely different? Probably would be in five. Yeah, maybe more like West area, but we're not sure. It depends if there's a demand for it. And, you know, because there's quite a few outdoor nurseries opening up now, which is great. You know, we've been seeing a lot of, you know, their staff, which is wonderful. And, you know, maybe the route to go is training. We're not, we want to add value. None of us are in education to make loads of money, right? I don't think I've met anyone. who works in this sector, who's in it to make loads of money. We, we all want like the same thing, which is like a really, really good start in life and early years experience for all our children. So that's the kind of overall goal. I think everybody as well. So yes, everybody that comes into the, this profession, I would say, certainly has that caring. And I think in our experience of working with people who are setting places up, that they are, especially for outdoor nurseries, have an interest in nature and particularly in their communities and wanting to have impact in their communities. And I know for us, a big drive for our social enterprise is to have bigger impact. And that means sharing more and more and more with the community so that exactly that what you described there, that experiential course or training, we do something very similar in our kindergarten. We run that in the summer. So we have practitioners come and they spend time in the setting but it's also very focused on the business side of things as well so that because that's usually the things people are not necessarily confident with and how to go about recruiting and this is a really big thing I'm a teacher how do I move into these things but they're all possible and I think if you start with a good values-based vision of what you want this to be you can have something very special for your community so all of that to say if you can spread a seed of inspiration for someone to take to their own communities, quite naturally, you have these little pockets of beautiful outdoor settings that spring up. And those are the people who understand the communities best, the people in them, who are part of them and care about them deeply. Not big franchise models. It's, you know, this is the way to go. And quite often those people aren't necessarily early years kind of or teacher qualified, you know. And, and that that's, that comes second, you know. Yeah. yeah, we're seeing more and more people like that as well. It used to purely be teachers, but now it's passionate parents are a really big one. Lots and lots, which is just fantastic. I'm looking forward to seeing how all of this unfolds. 
and where you end up. Now, just to close, what would you say to people who we're talking about here who want to do something for their community? They don't know where to start or what that looks like. What advice would you give them? Yeah, I think it would be you're not alone. Find a partner in crime, somebody who really thinks your idea is great or is on board in some way, shape or form and, and slowly through talking about it, setting your intention and you'll find more and more people. Suppose there's a trust in the process, but also in, in just reaching out and asking people and making those connections. And from there, hopefully things would turn out positive. Yeah, wonderful things will happen. Mm. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I look forward to speaking with you again in the future and hearing all the wonderful things that are happening. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs>